thanks very much, Father Philip. You know, it's a, it's a great honor to be invited along. And I'm only sorry I can't be there in person. But, you know, so if, if the COVID years have done anything, it's allowed for this kind of a interaction to go on. Um, when I was chatting with uh, Father Philip about what I would speak about um, at this conference, um, I published a paper a number of years ago, highly critical of the interaction of Thomism with analytical philosophy, making the point that analytical philosophy just in principle is incapable of coming to terms with uh, some important points on Aquinas' metaphysics. Um, but I thought it would be fun this time around to speak on how there could be some sort of cooperation uh, between Thomism and analytical philosophy. And so what I'm going to speak on today is where I do think there can be bridges built uh, between the two traditions, particularly with the analytic uh, engagement with uh, post-Kantian philosophy. Uh, and as you can see in the title, that's with uh, John McDowell. So I think that there can be a bridge built, uh, you know, from Thomism uh, to analytical philosophy by using the thinking of John McDowell and the Pittsburgh School more generally uh, with regard to dealing with um, issues in mind and world in a post-Kantian context. So that being said, I'll begin. Um, so modern philosophy. <clears throat> The modern term in philosophy, we can locate it in a number of historical thinkers. Descartes is generally taken to be the culprit. And typically, whenever I teach modern philosophy, I, I usually say, you know, it's all his fault. I just put up a picture of Descartes and I say, it's all his fault, blame him. Um, but look, the turn to modernity, we can't just place it all on Descartes. Um, there's also the influence of thinkers like Locke, Berkeley, and Hume. And if anybody's read Etienne Gilson, one of his earliest works was on the uh, nominalist influence on Descartes and how late medieval nominalism, you know, brought about the conceptual conditions by which Cartesianism could emerge. Now, what, what all of these modern thinkers had in common is that one way or another, they're concerned with mind and world and how mind and world interrelate. In the thought of Descartes, the relation of mind and world and securing the legitimacy of that relation, that takes on a real sense of urgency. And after Descartes, that mind-world relation is a pretty urgent issue that we need to deal with in philosophy. That's, that's what really captivates modern philosophers, which didn't really captivate our pre-modern philosophers. What seemed to be common um, to these sort of modern thinkers is the sense that our grasp on the world is in some way threatened. There, there, there's a threat to our conceptual grasp or our conceptual sort of uh, knowledge of the world, and it's the role of the philosopher to uh, secure that grasp. The philosopher is there to make secure the bridge that we build between mind and world. So questions pertaining to mind and world, they were taken to be primary. These were the primary questions that we had to deal with before we could do anything else. We had to engage with this issue. How is it that my thoughts, clear and distinct ideas, simple, complex ideas, conceptual contents, how those can be taken to be properly representative of the world as it is in itself? Metaphysics, on the other hand, as the study of being, as a study of the external world, that was taken to be something secondary. We couldn't do that. We couldn't study being unless we could secure our intellectual grasp upon being. So unless we could spell out the conditions by which we can intellectually grasp being, we couldn't undertake a study of being. Whereas for the scholastics, somebody like Aquinas, you can't undertake a study of the conditions by which we know being unless we know something about being itself and a particular subset of the beings encompassed by being itself, i.e. rational beings. So it, it inverts the entire procedure of our pre-modern philosophers. Now, what was clear is that for these thinkers, our engagement um, with the world through sensory perception is somewhat suspect. 
We're all familiar with um, Descartes and his suspicions, his skepticism about perceptual experience in the first meditation. We find that gripping. Okay, that's really gripping that sort of skepticism, the threat that he places upon our grasp of the world. Uh, we, we each, when, you know, when we're first year philosophy students, you know, we read the meditations and we're like, God, yeah, this sounds really, you know, this, there's something to this, you know, I'm actually scared. How is he going to deal with this until we get to the second meditation and thereafter? And, you know, we see that he salvages things. But we do find, you know, that gripping, that suspicion that Descartes puts on the link between mind and world through sensory perception in the first meditation. What sensory perception delivers us is not always what we understand the world to be like. And we just take the usual examples, like the stick when put in water looks to be bent when we know that it's not bent, train tracks meeting at the horizon when we know that parallel lines don't meet. Um, so what we have on the basis of this suspicion is a division of mind and world. Okay, there's this, there's this cutoff, there's this, you know, separation of mind and world. The world is accessible primarily via sense perception, but the representation of the world in the mind is not like what we perceive. We have to sanitize sensory perception in some way. The content of sensory perception has to be appropriately worked up into mental content, content fit for our understanding. So the separation of mental content from sensory content, it's a common theme among those philosophers who make up the broad schools of rationalism and empiricism. Okay, so that separation of the two types of content, we've got this sensory content, you know, that's often illusory, we can't really trust it, you know, it's the same between veridical and non-veridical experiences, we kind of need to sanitize that and work that up into ideas, we can deal with ideas, the mind can deal with ideas, both the rationalists and empiricists, you know, they affirm that that's what we're dealing with. Sensation, on the other hand, that's dealing with stuff that's illusory or just in itself, not conceptual and needs to be worked up into concepts. For both types of thinkers, rationalists and empiricists, sensory con uh, content has to be worked upon in such a way that our mental content can represent it appropriately. So sensory content requires some work. Okay, the mind has to do some work on the sensory content to make it appropriate for thought. For the rationalists, this typically meant that we have to pass over the sensory side of the content, pass over that as illusory in order to form clear and distinct ideas by, by which we can know the world. So a lot of us familiar with the, the wax example in Descartes, our sensory content with the wax represents it to us as hard, as of a certain smell and taste. And then after it's put by the fire, it's no longer hard, it's soft, different smell, different taste. Yet we represent it with the clear and distinct idea as the wax, the same wax subsisting throughout. So that sensory content, that's illusory, that hides, you know, the hidden nature that our clear and distinct ideas can get a hold upon. For the empiricist, on the other hand, our ideas have to represent the content of perception appropriately. Okay, we have impressions which generate simple ideas and which gen uh, from which we can generate more complex ideas. But our perceptions need to be encoded uh, by means of ideas. We need to encode our perceptions in some way by means of ideas. The perceptions don't come self-coded. We need to do that. That's going to be part of our story later on when we get to analytical philosophy. But what's common to the two sort of camps of thinkers is that sensation carries with it a kind of content utterly distinct from what mentality deals with. It's not conceptual content that sensation gives us. We need to sort of work up that conceptual content ourselves so that sensation is a mediator between mind and world. Okay. And that's where the threat comes. Basically, how can you trust 
that sensation? How can we take that sensation to be a reliable mediator? Certainly what's going on in the mind in that conceptual space, uh, because it's not already contained there in sense perception, it puts the mind at a distance from world. So what's common then is that perception carries with it a content of its own perceptual content, independent of the mental content. Uh, the conceptual content by means of which we can think about the world, that's heterogeneous from perceptual content. It's not the same type of content the perception gives us. If it were, mentality wouldn't have to work up perceptual content into conceptual content, okay? It would be ready-made. The world would be represented in perception, somewhat ready-made. We wouldn't have to perform upon it and sort of sanitize perceptual content to make it available for thought. So there's a heterogeneity then between the mental space and the perceptual space, which discloses the world to us. Okay, so that being the case, we have this heterogeneous divide between the content by which we primarily engage with the world, perceptual content, and the content by which we think it through, okay, by means of which we have an intellectual grasp upon the world. So we have the world disclosed to us through perception, that generates a kind of content, and that's on one side of the divide. And then you have a kind of a conceptual content by means of which you can think about the world, and that's on the other side of the divide. So there's this division between the mind and world, and the urgency exhibited in post-Cartesian philosophers is getting the mind back to the world. How can we you know, bring the mind back to the world? How do we build an appropriate bridge, clear and distinct ideas in Descartes, even clearer and even more distinct ideas in Spinoza, or if you're Locke or Hume, it's the representation of um, our perceptions as simple ideas and then more complex ideas. Enter Kant. So here's Kant. I thought I'd just use those pictures of, you know, his eyes just broodingly looking at us and interrogating the tradition that came before us. You know, that's almost like the, the you know, the images of Heidegger and, you know, the Heideggerian star that he has. I think this is brilliant, just the way Kant penetrates this whole discussion. The significance of Kant, and when I teach Kant, I always say he, he introduces a bit of sanity back into the discussion. The significance of Kant is that he didn't take the content of perceptual experience, intuition. He didn't take that content to be a content which is heterogeneous from conceptual content, the understanding. The content of intuition is not heterogeneous from the content of understanding, according to Kant. This is, this is fundamental to his entire project, that the contents of each are not heterogeneous from each other. He took the content of intuition and the content of understanding to be the same. The content that intuition deals with is the same content that understanding deals with. So the content of perception is the content of understanding for Kant. And a very famous phrase from the Transcendental Aesthetic, from his first critique, he states that intuitions without concepts are blind, Thoughts without intuitions are empty. So just let that marinate for you a bit while Kant just broods staring at you, okay? Intuitions without concepts are blind. Thoughts without intuitions are empty. What does that mean? How, how do we interpret that? It's a very Kantian thing to say. Think about the first bit. Intuitions without concepts are blind. Think about what it is to be blind. It's to be in darkness. It's the emptiness there's a nothingness there. That's what, that's what blindness is like. There's nothing there to be grasped. If intuitions do not involve concepts, they're empty. They're blind. They're in darkness. There is nothing to intuitions, nothing available within intuition, unless there's some form of concept there. 
Thoughts require intuitions. We're on to the second bit. Thoughts without intuitions are empty. Thoughts require intuitions. Otherwise, they're empty. They have no content. Again, there's nothing to thought unless we have intuitions. There's nothing to thought without intuition. There's no thought at all. An empty thought would just be no thought at all. So intuitions without concepts, they're empty, they're blind, and they're in darkness. But similarly, thoughts without intuitions are empty. Bearing in mind that it's understanding which, which deals with concepts, what we get here then is that intuition, perceptual experience, is a conceptual episode. It's an episode that the understanding takes. Okay, understanding is involved all the way down into intuition for Kant. The content that intuition discloses to the subject then is the content of understanding. It's what we understand. Intuition and uh, understanding, they don't deal with heterogeneous contents, but with homogeneous contents. This needs to be the case for Kant, because what Kant is going to want to say is that the only reason why we can apply the categories, okay, the a priori categories uh, of the understanding in the transcendental deduction, he argues that the only reason why we can apply them is because there's a certain categorical togetherness already involved in intuition. Intuition involves a categorical togetherness, which brings in the operation, operation understandings categories. But what's the content of intuition? Intuition is the means by which objects in the world are disclosed to the subject. Intuition is the means by which objects in the world are disclosed to the subject. If that intuition already has a certain categorical togetherness, which brings into operation the a priori categories, that categorical togetherness can come from nowhere else but the objects in the world that it discloses. Okay, so this, this is a very non-idealist reading of Kant, you know, which has become very popular recently from, you know, sort of thinkers who are actually reading Kant in German and not reading Norman Kemp Smith's translation. So it's a very sort of, one could say, almost realist um, reading of Kant, which has become defensible quite recently. The point here is that what intuition discloses to us is a content which is available to understanding, and it can only be available to understanding if it's a content which is categorizable categorizable. The content of intuition has to be categorizable so that the a priori categories can be brought into operation. And in other words, what perceptual experience discloses brings into operation conceptual thought. And it could not bring into uh, operation conceptual thought unless there was already a conceptuality to the perceptual experience. So mind and world are conformable to each other for Kant. Mind and world are conformable to each other. Uh, they're not heterogeneous to each other. And I usually, when I do this with my students, uh, and they usually read, you know, that Kant was an idealist, he was some form of idealist, the mind constructs the world. I, I typically ask them the question, if Kant were an idealist, why then in the critique of pure reason does he have a section titled The Refutation of Idealism? If he were an idealist, typically Kant is taken to be a field Barclayan. Okay, he's kind of like a Barclayan, you know, where, you know, to be is to be perceived. And then we just have these noumenal objects out there because we want some sort of real world anyway, because of our commitment to Newtonianism. But that's a bit of an odd sort of reading of Kant that he's a field Barclay. And I don't think it's appropriate to, you know, Kant's thought in the first critique. I think what Kant is striving after is this idea that there's a conformability between mind and world such that, you know, what intuition provides is something that is available for thought. Okay. Um, all that's by way of an introduction. Okay, that's 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 the introduction. So it's it's that Kantian insight, 
that mind and world are conformable to each other, which is reiterated again by John McDowell in contemporary analytic discussion of the same sorts of issues. It's this that I think secures what I take to be a link with Aquinas's way of thinking on such matters. So I think this secures us a link with Aquinas's thought on the issue. So let's have a wee look at uh, logical empiricism in the space of reasons. Okay, so hopefully you all recognize this guy. That's Rudolf Carnap. Okay, so if anybody's an analytical philosopher, he is an analytical philosopher. If any account of analytical philosophy, which I know is up for grabs, you know, given yesterday's discussion, but if any account excludes this guy, then I think there's something wrong with that account. So here, here we have Carnap. Um, logical empiricism, it was a kind of an agenda-driven philosophical project. Okay, it sought to purge philosophy of its pretensions for metaphysics and disinfect it from what its practitioners took to be literal nonsense. So we're all hopefully familiar with the, the little cul-de-sac in the history of you know, 20th century analytical philosophy that was logical positivism, logical empiricism. And you know, it had this project of you know, purging metaphysics you know, literal nonsense um, from um, our philosophical, you know, way of life or, you know, what we're doing in philosophy. And, and Sarah brought up yesterday about, you know, engaging with philosophers that we, of whom we might be suspicious, you know, who might entertain ideas or worldviews um, that we might find troublesome, despite, you know, how brilliant their philosophy is. I think Carnap is a, a, an exact case in point there. Carnap called metaphysicians musicians without any talent. Um, so despite calling metaphysicians musicians without any talent, it's still worthwhile to engage with Carnap's thinking, even though, you know, uh, Quine has come along and, you know, I think, you know, you know, late, you know, Carnapian sort of thinking to rest still, I think it's worthwhile engaging with Carnap. One particular feature of logical empiricism was its reiteration of some problems that uh, have been given to us by modernity, in particular Humean empiricism. Carnap develops an account of meaning that it, it sort of carries with it a certain Humean account of mind and world. On Carnap's account, the initial meaning of a term can be located in its place uh, within an observation statement or a protocol sentence. So Whenever we want to think of the most primitive meaning of a term, we have to find, you know, the observation statement, which encodes a particular observation or a particular experience. So we have some protocol sentence, um, which is the encoding of a particular experience, and that gives us the primary meaning of a particular term that we're going to use. So the protocol sentence, that provides the conditions for the meaning of a term, so that if we have more sophisticated instances, that usage, those sophisticated instances, they can always be traced back to the original protocol sentence. So the more and more complex usages of a term that we get, such as, you know, that of causality, can always be reduced back to some sort of observation of one thing regularly following upon another. Okay, so and that would be the original protocol sentence for something like causality. We can't take causality to mean anything so like, you know, some sort of, you know, power, you know, is transferred, you know, from a cause to an effect or an effect depends or participates in the power of its cause or some sort of counterfactual situation, because that would be going beyond, you know, the primary notion of cause within the protocol sentence. So our observations, according to Carnap, they provide us with the initial context of meaning, which we can work up into more sophisticated contexts, uh, which are always reducible to the original. So we can never proceed meaningfully in our use of a term beyond the sensory conditions by which the term is meaningful. Now, that's a clear, you know, sort of presentation of, you know, the verification principle, you know, beloved of the logical positivists. But it's also more or less, uh, you know, more or less explicitly, a human account of mind and world 
whereby we're met with simple impressions from which we form simple ideas as faint copies of the impressions from which we form more and more complex ideas. The complex ideas are meaningful to us because they're reducible to the simple ideas which are reducible to the simple impressions. The simple ideas represent, or, you know, if you're thinking of, you know, in terms of protocol sentences, they encode, the simple impressions are encoded by the simple ideas, and then we just work from there up to the more um, complex. What's clear here is that the conceptual content that we're dealing with, the ideas uh, that we form, these are faint copies of the impressions, and this account of the mind-world relation, where the, whereby the mind is simply, it simply copies our sensory impressions, is one that came to be criticized by Sellers and in the Pittsburgh School in his critique of the myth of the given. So we're moving on to Sellers here, but you know, for Carnap, he's reiterating uh, a kind of you know empiricist um, view of mind and world, whereby the content of experience is itself heterogeneous um, from the content of thought. Thought has to do something; it has to encode experience in a protocol sentence before we can have you know sort of any meaning to language. And now we get on to Sellers and the myth of the given. There he is there. They're sellers. Okay, so what sellers have to say about the myth of the given or the space of reasons? Sellers states, in characterizing an episode or a state as that of knowing, we're not giving an empirical description of that episode or state. So we're not giving an empirical description of it. We're placing it in the logical space of reasons, of justifying and being able to justify what one says. So when we characterize an episode as one of knowing, we're placing it within a logical space where there's normativity and we're claiming that we're justified or that we're able to justify that what we say. That's from a paper of Sellers. Um, if you don't know it, um, well, it's a, you know, empiricism in the philosophy of mind. I thoroughly recommend it to um, all my Thomists in the audience, empiricism of the philosophy of mind. Uh, Sellers himself was, you know, a devotee of Aquinas and he wrote on Aquinas and, you know, engaged with Aquinas quite a bit. What does Sellers mean here? When we characterize a state as one of knowing, he's saying that we're not giving a mere empirical description. We're not simply describing the interaction of two things, A and B, upon each other. What we're saying is that such a state, being in such a state, uh, a state of knowing, that's a normative state uh, whereby the belief um, that, whereby if we have a belief that the world is thus and so, that's because the world is thus and so. We're able to justify that belief by appeal to some reason, and that has to occur within a logical space. The problem for the logical empiricists is that they took a state of knowing to be one of mere impacts on the subject. And again, consider Carnap and his protocol sentences. The protocol sentences, they report on an impact of the world on the senses, how the world irritates our nerve endings. Our protocol sentences sort of, you know, report on that irritation that we get from the world on our nerve endings. Carnap and the logical empiricists, they held that we, we can characterize knowing if we can give a full and fine-grained enough empirical description at, at, of what is happening kind of at the boundary, where these impacts occur, where the irritations of our nerve endings are occurring. Sellers' point is that a characterization of a state of knowing will always fall short if it only reports a description. This is because a state of knowing is not descriptive. It involves normativity of being justified in one's beliefs. So a characterization as a state of knowing, according to Sellers, has to characterize it within the logical space of reasons where normativity abounds. And this all boils down to Sellers' critique of the myth of the given. The given, which is the given, which is part of the myth, is the idea of a uh, freestanding world 
unperturbed by conceptuality. It's a world com completely free from com conceptuality and we can just leave it alone and we're completely external to it and the world is external to us. Um, and this follows from a modern outlook, which is shared by both the rationalists and the empiricists. Mentality, mind, it stands aloof from the world. The world is external and mentality simply looks on and has to get an appropriate access to the world. The fear um, with that sort of point of view is that in being so independent from the world, there's no constraint on the mind. The mind is free to think any way it, it likes. So how do we constrain it from going awry and you know thinking whatever it wants? The spontaneity of, of the mental, when left to its own devices, can go anywhere and just, you know, think whatever it wants. So we need some sort of constraint on the mental. And so we introduced this notion of the given, capital G, the given of the empirical experience. That's meant to introduce a kind of constraint on the freedom of thought, and it grounds the spontaneity of mentality. Okay, so it brings the spontaneity of thought to a screeching halt. Now, uh, and here's John McDowell. This is how he characterizes it. What generates the temptation to appeal to the given is the thought that spontaneity characterizes exercises of conceptual understanding in general. So that spontaneity extends all the way out to the conceptual contents that sit closest to the impacts of the world on our sensibility. We need to conceive of this expansive spontaneity as subject to control from outside of our thinking. We need some control in our conceptual thought, something to control it and not let it be so spontaneous. On pain of representing the operations of spontaneity as a frictionless spinning in the void. Okay, so our, our conceptual thinking is like a frictionless spinning in the void unless we appeal to some sort of given that is going to control it. As McDowell says, the given seems to uh, supply that external control. Now, the given is mythical here because the external constra constraints supplied by the given can't ground our thinking about the world. It's impossible that the given can ground our thinking. This is because knowing involves normativity in the space of reasons, but the given is wholly outside of the space of reasons. It's outside of thought. It's outside of mentality. It's what is outside of conceptual thought, which tries, which is meant to introduce friction. But because of its outs, it's outside of mentality, it can't offer justifying reasons. If knowing involves justifying reasons of being able to justify what one believes, and the given is wholly outside of the space of reasons, the given can't justify any thought. The given of empirical experience can't justify thought. This is the given, you know, uh, denuded of conceptual content. That can't justify thought because it sits outside the boundary of the space of reasons. Justifications are rational. And if the given is outside the space of reasons, it's, it's not rational. It doesn't involve conceptual content. So the given of empirical experience cannot justify our thought. And so logical empiricism is left in the awkward state that the given which is taken to report on the world about which we'd like our thought to figure can't be taken to justify any thought about the world. An empirical experience cannot justify an, an empirical belief on this view, precisely because an empirical experience does not, involves re does not involve reason. It doesn't involve conceptual content, which is incapable, which is capable of justifying a thought. So this is a bit of a kind of an uncomfortable position for an empiricist to be in, that an empirical experience can't justify an empirical belief. As McDowell puts it, uh, the result is a picture in which constraint from outside is exerted at the outer boundary of the expanded space of reasons. And what we are committed to depicting is a brute impact from the exterior, irritations of the nerve endings, as Quine would say. 
What happens there is the result of an alien force, the causal impact of the world, operating outside the control of our spontaneity. It's one thing to be exempt from blame on the ground that the position we find ourselves in can be traced ultimately to brute force, okay? So if some sort of brute force acts upon us, okay, um, we're exempt from blame. It's quite another thing to have a justification. In effect, the idea of the given offers exculpations where we wanted justifications. So the given is acting like a brute force. That's what forces us to think what we're thinking. But that only gives us an exculpation. It doesn't give us a justification because the given isn't reason involving. And justifications, you know, are reason involving. They're rational. So the given, we just have exculpations when it comes to it. If we're asked, why do you believe in the way that you do? We'll just point to the given and say, because look. Um, so when challenged when we hold the belief that the world is thus and so, we can just simply point at the world and just say, well, look at the world. That's why we believe it. Uh, we're merely exculpating ourselves when we point at the given. Insofar as the given is wholly outside the space of reasons and free from conceptual content, the given's not characterized as thus and so. So we can't say that our belief of the world is thus and so. Our empirical belief is because the world is thus and so, because the given doesn't reveal itself as thus and so. So where does the thus and so nature of our thought come from? It can't come from the given, yet the given is taken to provi provide constraint in our thought, just so that our thought can report on the world as thus and so and not spin friction frictionlessly. So logical empiricism is left with the problem of explaining where the thus and so, the formal conceptual nature of our thought comes from. Now, McDowell, he diagnoses modernity's fall into the myth of the given as a disenchantment of nature. It's a view of nature as in some way disenchanted. Nature is seen as devoid of conceptual content. For, for Descartes, it's just res extensa. It's just an extended thing, okay? It's not, that, it's not any kind of mental thing. Nature is just an extended thing. Devoid of conceptual content. All that nature provides us with is a realm governed by, is a realm governed by law. It's not enchanted. It's not formal. It's not conceptual. What we're met with in perceptual experience is law-like regularity that can be plotted, analyzed, and explained mathematically. The world's being thus and so, being formal, having some sort of conceptual content, is never envisaged by modern philosophy, since that would lead, well, on, on the modern philosophical view, that would lead us into a certain you know, enchantment of nature, a kind of a rampant Platonism, as McDowell calls, call, calls it, or a kind of supernaturalism. The idea that behind the appearances, there is some deeper reality there, by means of which the appearances are the appearances, you know, that, you know, substances have dormative powers by means of which they can go to sleep. But where are these dormative powers? You know, we can't sort of, you know, search the substances to find them. It's this kind of rampant Platonism and the fear of rampant Platonism that McDowell thinks um, modern philosophy took the turn that it did. We're left with the kind of a bald naturalism by which sensory perception, it doesn't disclose a world to us. The mind is free to think of the world as it likes. And so to introduce friction on the mind's freedom, we appeal is made to a kind of a conceptualist given. Now, in order to avoid the myth of the given, McDowell advocates for relaxed Platonism. This is my kind of representation of a relaxed Platonism. Just keep calm and read Plato. This is what I think relaxed Platonism looks like. Right. On this sort of, you know, view of relaxed Platonism, you know, emphasis on the relaxed. Um, on this view, perceptual experience brings into operation conceptual capacities. So our perceptual experience brings into operation certain capacities for conceptual thought that we have. 
these capacities would not be brought into operation were there not features of experience, and thus the world that enables that experience, that were themselves homogenous with such capacities. So in McDowell's view, unless experience had something about it which could bring into operation concept our conceptual capacities, those operations would simply not be brought about. And that's the familiar Kantian thought. Unless there was something categorical about our intuitions, you know, which disclose the world to us, our a priori categories just wouldn't be flipped on. You know, the, the, the switch wouldn't be flicked. Okay. So there has to be something, you know, about our intuition or our perceptions, which is capable of turning on those conceptual operations. So our conceptual capacities, they would remain op inoperative were there not some sort of conceptual content supplied by experience enabled by the world by which they're brought into operation. You can see the kind of relaxed Platonism here. Our experience carries with it some kind of conceptual content. And since experience discloses the world to us, the world that thereby disclosed must involve this conceptual content as well. But it's a relaxed Platonism. McDowell doesn't want to supernaturalize the world. Okay, on the Aquinas. So this is the first that I've mentioned Aquinas. We're 35 minutes in, no mention of Aquinas yet. Okay. <clears throat> I think that in what's been said so far, we can make clear connections with the thought of Aquinas on these matters. To begin with, the mind-world relation. Aquinas is not of the view that the content of perceptual experience is not the content of thought. Maybe there were too many negatives there. Okay, transform that. Aquinas is of the view that the content of perceptual experience is the content of thought. For Thomas, when we have a perceptual experience, we form a phantasm, and the form of that phantasm is the form of the object we experienced, okay? So what we experience, the content of our experience, has the same formal content as the object of experience. Uh, this experience then brings into operation the agency of the intellect. There's a certain agency of the intellect by means of which we think about the experience, and that goes to work in trying to figure out what the form of the experience is, what that formal content is. It's not introducing form or ideas or conceptual content itself in the way that the rationalists and the empiricists thought. It's rather trying to discover within the experience what the formal content is uh, disclosed, uh, by, uh, disclosed by experience of the world. Eventually, the subject by means of the agent intellect comes to understand the form of the experience. And so the potency of the subject's intellect, that passive side of the intellect, the passive intellect, that's conformed to the form of the object in question. Considered in this way, I think Aquinas' position bears a striking resemblance to that of McDowell. And I published to that effect several years ago in the Thomist, a, a paper on the convergences of um, Aquinas and McDowell in this issue. For both Aquinas and McDowell, perceptual experience brings in the operation certain intellectual abilities by means of which that experience can be understood. For both of them, the content of experience, which is derived from the world, is conceptual or formal content that the subject seeks to grasp by means of the intellect. And for both, it's in grasping the con content of conceptual experience that the world is thus and so, that justifies our knowledge that the world is thus and so. Okay, now along with this shared epistemic outlook, there's also the shared rejection of rampant Platonism. As is well known, Thomas rejects the platonic commitment to separate immaterial forms, and he opts for the more Aristotelian view that objects themselves are formed in some way, that the form is within the object itself as informing the matter. It's unclear whether or not McDowell accepts the Aristotelian ontology here. He certainly rejects the platonic commitment to what he calls the supernatural, but it's unclear wh whether he rejects you know, forms as imminent in particulars, 
but he does accept an Aristotelian sort of uh, view of the moral subject, because whilst he rejects bald naturalism, he advocates for what he calls a naturalism of second nature, this Aristotelian notion of second nature, that we have our primary nature, which is our physical substantial nature, but through habitual dispositions, we form a second nature, a way of being reason responsive uh, to the world. And this is the Aristotelian notion of a moral subject. McDowell accepts that. And he, you know, seeks to articulate what he means by second nature. So McDowell himself is not kind of, you know, averse uh, to, you know, sort of engaging with Aristotelianism. Uh, and we have a bit of an Easter egg there, you know, because McDowell himself has engaged with Aquinas in these issues. What McDowell, what McDowell is striving after, it's a naturalism that's not as reductive as bald naturalism, but that doesn't move towards a supernaturalism of rampant Platonism, the relaxed Platonism that he talks about. Now, I submit that what McDowell is after here in his relaxed Platonism is Thomas's Aristotelianism. Um, the Aristotelian ontology is, after all, it's committed to forms, so we have formal content, but they're not supernatural. They're the structuring principle of matter. In being the structuring principle of matter, forms, uh, in turn, they're the ex explanation of the world's being thus and so. So the conceptual structure of the world is simply the formal structure of the substances of it, it within the world. And so McDowell's quest for a relaxed Platonism, I think, can be found in Aristotelianism. I haven't told him that yet. I haven't got a chance to tell him that, but I think that's the case. So conclusion. I've got about six minutes left, so time that well. Right, conclusion. <clears throat> so in the past, I've argued that analytical philosophy cannot come to terms with Thomas' essay, with Aquinas' thoughts on the act of existence. So I've argued that in the past, and I stand by that conclusion, okay? I do stand by that conclusion that analytical philosophy can't come to terms with Thomist essay. But in the past, I've also argued that there is a connection between movements in contemporary analytical philosophy on the issue of mind and world, especially those influenced by Kant and, you know, German philosophy more generally, and Aquinas' own thought on the same. Now, in this presentation, I've argued that this is the case with McDowell's engagement with modern empiricism and the myth of the given, just as contemporary analytical philosophers are looking to the past in areas of metaphysics, ethics, action theory, for, for instance, like in metaphysics, the turn to modal essentialism has got analytical philosophers looking at SCOTUS, of all people. Uh, same is true for action theory and, you know, ethics and so on. Um, Elizabeth Anscombe, her work on intention, you know, right back, you know, influenced by Aquinas, Aristotle and so on. That these contemporary analytical philosophers they're looking to the past to deal with issues within the analytical tradition. So too, I think cooperation can and ought to occur between analytical philosophers and Thomists in dealing with issues from the analytical tradition pertaining to mind and world. And I think that's possible because the issues of mind and world, whilst Aquinas has a view about mind and world and it appears, it's never really brought up in the topical way that it's brought up in post-Cartesian philosophy. These issues are seen as urgent after Descartes, but they weren't as urgent for somebody like Aquinas. So it's thought as sort of here and there. And so analytical philosophy, you know, in having these different approaches to it, allows Thomists then to articulate the synthetic view um, of Aquinas and these issues. But here's the caveat. Here's the last thing. But, but, but. This is, you know, what's usually said to me. But McDowell isn't an analytical philosopher. This is the charge. McDowell isn't an analytical philosopher. Crispin Wright. Crispin Wright and others have stated that, McDowell, you're not an analytical philosopher. Why is he not an analytical philosopher? Well, he, amongst others, especially the Pittsburgh School, and then we can think of Richard Rorty and people like that, they are taken to be on the fringes precisely for their inheritance 
of post-Kantian German philosophy, especially Hegel. Crispin Wright, very sarcastically, in publication, speaks of McDowell's German luminaries and his dependence on these German luminaries. And that's why he's not an analytical philosopher. So McDowell's not an analytical philosopher. Why? Because he's influenced by Hegel. Analytical philosophers aren't influenced by Hegel, according to these other analytical philosophers. That's the objection. And we saw that sort of coming up yesterday as well. Now, a theme in emerging in the discussions of this conference, there doesn't seem to be a philosophically robust definition of analytical philosophy. Okay, it either allows too much or not enough. All right. Um, there, there just doesn't seem to be this sort of um, robust definition. And given that, the notion of analytical philosophy seems to be a kind of a sociological one, or even worse, a double indexical one. Analytical philosophy is whatever piece of philosophy interests me, an analytical philosopher, at this moment. And so if I'm interested in Hegel, well, you know, that's analytical philosophy. But if I'm interested in Sartre, well, that's analytical philosophy. Nevertheless, McDowell and the others, they're providing frameworks for overcoming tricky problems in modern philosophy that analytical philosophy has inherited. We saw this as an issue inherited by Carnap. If anybody is an analytical philosophy philosopher, Carnap is an analytical philosopher. So not only that, McDowell and others, they're being engaged with by analytics of the strict observance. Somebody like Crispin Wright engaging with McDowell. Their work is making analytics take a step back and take notice and, and engage with their works. Witness all the publications and the commentary on McDowell's Mind and World, Sellers' Empiricism and Philosophy of Mind, Robert Brandon's work, and you know various others, Rorty's work. Notice that the analytics are taking a step back and commenting on that precisely because that work is dealing with issues that card-carrying analytics of the strict observance takes seriously. But we've seen that there's a conceptual connection between this way of thought and Aquinas's. And in McDowell's case, it's not just a conceptual connection. I pointed out earlier that Sellers enjoyed Aquinas and engaged with Aquinas. Sellers wrote a paper called Being and Being Known, published in the American Catholic Philosophical Quarterly, where he criticized Aquinas. McDowell, in the Woodbridge Lectures, uh, the third Woodbridge Lecture, Intentionality as a Relation, criticizes Sellers' criticism of Thomas. He criticizes Sellers' criticism of Thomas that this was an opportunity that Sellers could have learned something from Thomas uh, by engaging with Thomas on mind and world. And McDowell wrote a paper called Sellers' Thomism, where he criticizes Sellers for not being Thomistic enough, that Sellers could have, you know, kind of actually gone further if he had have actually, you know, engaged with Thomas a wee bit more and been a wee bit more Thomistic. So there's an actual sort of historical, you know, connection there between McDowell and Aquinas, not just a conceptual one. Um, so, yes, there's a conceptual connection between, you know, McDowell's way of thinking uh, and that's kind of, you know, Pittsburgh school way of thinking about mind and world and the thought of Aquinas uh, on the uh, thought of Aquinas more generally on these issues. Aquinas thought then just as, you know, McDowell's in the Pittsburgh school should make analytics do make analytics take a step back and take note. Aquinas thought should also make analytics take a step back and take note. And herein lies the promise of cooperation, in my opinion. So thanks very much. That's what I've got for you. I hope you enjoyed that. And uh, came in at 45 minutes exactly. So looking forward to Sarah's response now.
Here I might. Um, yeah, that's good. How can we get started? Yeah. I've done PowerPoint before. You're good. You're good. And then I think you actually need to share it through Zoom. Or actually, I should. I shared the. Oh. Okay. Okay, it's not going to be on screen. Let me. That's <laughs> it's, yeah. Okay, this isn't. It's it's just like it's just two pictures. I can. Okay, you don't have the to. slides. Okay, yeah. Okay. Um. Yeah, she said that it's fine. Yeah. It's fine. It's really just a couple of photos. It's it's a prop basically. So, okay. Um. So many thanks to Gavin for this really thought provo provoking talk. Um, I think he gives a really good outline of Sellers' famous myth of the given, roughly Sellers' rejection of the idea that there's a world of mind-independent reality that floats free of our sense apparatus, and that our terms and concepts derive their meaning somehow directly from the world. And he also talks about McDowell, the contemporary of Sellers, um, being after a similar view to Aquinas. So what I'm going to do here is just be a completely dogmatic, canonical, analytic philosopher. I take it as my job in this little commentary just to kind of, I think, clarify what's being asked in the central philosophical questions to which McDowell and Sellers are trying to give answers. And then I'll talk a bit about the historical and methodological notes at the end. So in my mind, Sellers and McDowell are actually asking a question at the heart of analytic philosophy. This is not to say I I take them to be like canonical analytic philosophers. I actually don't. I always thought of them as kind of continental. So that might just be a kind of like sociological note about philosophy. But I think the central question here is what is the metaphysical relationship between the mind independent world and the human sense perception that makes sense of it? So I think this is like a really well trod question. In, in philosophy. So when I teach introduction to philosophy, you know, it's it's often phrased as something like, how do we know we're not in the matrix? Um, how do we know we're not being, you know, fed weird sense perceptions that don't actually track reality by some sort of evil demon, right? So like just these are in some sense questions as old as time, and they aren't just like in the province of Sellers and McDowell, you know, they kind of exist at the core of what I think of as, as typical analytic philosophy, questions in the philosophy of mind about how sense perceptions reflect our world, questions in metaphysics about the relationship between, say, the mind and the world, and even questions about logic and epistemology about the role that our sense perceptions play in inference. So I think, you know, we can ask, how do we trust our empirical sense data and base our picture of the world off of it? Another way of framing that question is, to what extent is our mind mediating the world in a way that mirrors the world itself? Or is it just doing something totally different? So if I perceive this water bottle right here, is it the case that there's like literally a little water bottle in my head? That's a kind of like representationalist picture in analytic philosophy of mind, or is there something else going on? Like, I kind of think, no matter how good our neuroscience gets, we're probably not going to see a literal little water bottle in there. So you know, this is a question analytic philosophers ask, and especially analytic philosophers of mind ask. Now, I think there's an additional question here about the role of the mind-world relation and what it does to our inductive inferences. That is, how our philosophy of mind interacts with our epistemology and our logic. So here I have a fun graphic. Let's suppose that I have the following thought. If these two 
two rectangles are not the same color, I won't be surprised. Let's suppose that they're not the same color, so I'm not surprised. That is the one on top is kind of like a dark gray and the one on the bottom is a kind of white. But now I'm about to blow your minds like I do with the minds of undergrads. Consider that in fact, they are the same color. Yep, I didn't actually adjust the graphic. That is the same graphic with something pasted in the middle. So this is a kind of like fairly typical optical illusion where, you know, we have this sense of what's going on and then our minds are totally blown. We realize it's not what's going on. So what I've just done here is give you a sense perception that turned out to be not veridical, as they would say in the philosophy of mind literature, not correct. And there's this question about what role those sorts of sense perceptions play in our logic. We're supposed to basically base our knowledge of the world off of sensory perceptions. And knowledge of the world is obviously a very general term, but in analytic philosophy, one thing we're trying to do is look at what other sorts of knowledge we can build on top of our sensory perceptions. So if we can't even trust something like this fun graphic, the thought goes, how else are we supposed to like look at inductive inferences? So Gavin notes here that there are similarities between McDowell and Aristotle, and McDowell advocates for a kind of relaxed Platonism. That is what I take to be the idea that there's this world of immaterial forms that isn't entirely accessible to the human senses, but the human senses are doing some sort of mediating in between. So here's one thing I propose as a kind of bridge between like McDowell and Sellers, who again, I don't really take to be typically analytic, um, analytic logic choppers such as myself, and let's say Thomas, I think there's one question unifying all of these people, basically. And the question is, like, what is the place of the mind in mediating the world? And that is, is ambiguous between a kind of like perceptual capacity and like it's a metaphysical place in the world. And we can taxonomize these different kinds of philosophers based on answers to those questions. So for example, some people will think that the mind mediates the world in a particular way or sort of like becomes the world. That's a kind of like, you know, on some views, Thomistic approach, on other views, a Salarzian or McDowellian approach. Others will just think that the mind is this like imperfect sensor of the world. Here I have a quote from Victor Kasten, who is a well-known ancient philosopher. He says, Aristotle believes that there's always an accompanying physiological change in perception. That's like the little sort of like chair on the head or like little sort of water bottle on the head sort of thing. Yet it needn't be the specific sort of change that literalism requires. It's not necessary for the organ to instantiate the exact same perceptible quality that is being perceived. In perception, the matter of our sense organs comes to share the same proportions that the perceptible quality exhibits. But the organ can realize this proportion in different contraries and so without necessarily replicating the perceptible quality within ourselves. And so here, I think one nice thing about this quote and one nice thing about this paper called The Spirit and the Letter is he too is sort of trying to bridge historical approaches with analytic approaches to this question, taking into account modern views of what representationalist theories of mind tell us along with kind of more ancient views. And so I just wanna conclude by saying that, again, we have a kind of unifying philosophical question here with different sorts of methodologies, but in fact, we're all in the truth trenches together on the same side. Thank you.